where an introduction to this book uh, we saw Paul speaking of uh, the gospel and why the gospel is the power of God to save uh, those who have faith and why Paul is not ashamed of this gospel, why he has uh, given his whole life to proclaiming this gospel to those uh, whom God has sent him. And I guess uh, we might ask the question, hearing about this gospel and Paul's uh, love for it, uh, his desire to see it proclaimed, uh, is why, well, why is there a need for this gospel? Why do people need to hear this message uh, and be saved and uh, to know the power of God uh, through this message? We live in a world where we might, uh, well, we should genuinely ask that question when we see uh, so many people around us uh, effectively saying by their lives and by what they do, uh, they don't see the need for the Christian message, for the gospel. They don't see it as relevant to them. Uh, why is why is that the case? In the ancient world, it wasn't a difficult thing to hear uh, what, what we read this morning, a message about uh, human sin and God's judgement. It is a hard passage to read, isn't it? And for us to hear those kinds of statements about us as human beings. But for ancient people, it wasn't as difficult to hear it because many cultures of the time had some kind of religious belief that their gods or their gods had control over the world and over their lives and that when bad things happen in life in the, or in the world in general that it was a sign that their god or gods were displeased. So there's an earthquake God, the gods must be angry, they're shaking the world. Uh, someone gets sick, uh, the gods must be displeased with me and so they're punishing me uh, with sickness and so on. That was kind of the general world view of most people. You now in those religions, you then must make sacrifices to appease the gods, to try and uh, keep them happy or to make them happy when they're upset. Now that's obviously a very wrong way of thinking about um, God and about us but at least in that world at that time people had this general idea of being unworthy or inferior to God or their gods and that God had some kind of authority over people and he has authority to punish those who do wrong. Our modern world view, though, is very different. We've lost that kind of thinking uh, here, in, particularly in the West. In many ways, for good, because we uh, no longer have necessarily this, this fearful superstition or, uh, or the brutality that was so much a part of ancient religion where people would even go to lengths 
the great length of sacrificing their own children. Uh, thank God that we don't have that anymore uh, in our modern world, at least here in Australia. But the pendulum has swung to the opposite direction in such a way that people now dismiss or try to rule out the whole spiritual dimension, saying that well, anything that happens in the world or in my life can be explained by science or by psychology. Uh, humanism has claimed to reveal the righteousness of humanity and if there's any wrath to be had, if we're to be angry at anything, uh, it should be upon the religions and the gods of the past that has kept humanity in, in ignorance. So for the secular humanist, which is really the average Australian, it's offensive to say that human beings are unrighteous and God has a right to be wrathful towards us. And as Christians we can easily just buy into that thinking because we're surrounded by it. Uh, it's communicated forcefully to us in almost every aspect of society, in education, in media and entertainment, in art and in politics. Uh, I just came across this quotation on the internet just recently. You deserve to be in spaces and relationships that make you happy, that feed your soul and help you to grow. You are worthy of connections that are loving, nourishing, kind and authentic. Before you settle for anything less than, remind yourself that the places you visit and the people you journey with through life should make you feel safe, loved and enough. The person who wrote that quote is a, a popular writer uh, that many people uh, read her books and her blog and but that kind of sums up the approach of the modern secular humanism amongst which we live. Um, you deserve to be, uh, to be well. You deserve to have good things. Now what that means on a very practical level is that many or it seems most people hearing us talking about Jesus' death and resurrection being good news doesn't seem to be especially good news. If anything, it sounds like bad news because we talk about sin and judgement uh, before we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. So we have this temptation before us. The temptation is to let the world tell us what the problem is and then that then determines what is the good news uh, how that problem can be fixed. So we listen to what the world considers to be the problems that need fixing and we can be tempted to make our message fit or, or to change it to, to be the solution to their felt needs. And we can say it in ways that sound very biblical and Christian. So the problem might be people are poor. What's the good news? Well, we can feed the poor. We might say the problem is low self-esteem. What's the good news? Well, God can help you reach your full potential. Or maybe the problem is unjust systems. 
injustice in the world. Well, the good news is Jesus taught us to bring about justice. If we listen to what the world says the problem is, uh, we'll be tempted to change our message to try and make it sound good news, to make it palatable to them. We need to listen to God, to hear him tell us what the problem actually is. And only then we'll see that his solution to our problem is the best news ever. Why do people need the Gospel? This is what Paul answers in uh, the next two chapters. People need the Gospel because of God's wrath. Notice in verse 18 he says, For the wrath of God is revealed. Why, why is he not ashamed of the Gospel? Why does he I believe it is the power for salvation for all who believe. It's because the wrath of God is being revealed. We need salvation because we're under God's wrath. Notice here the stark contrast here that between the God who is righteous and who's able to make righteous a person who lives by faith in him and the unrighteousness of human beings who instead of living by faith are actively suppressing the truth. Because of this unrighteousness of human beings, God's wrath is being revealed. Now normally we'd speak of God's wrath as being an expression of his righteousness. Because he is righteous, he is angry at sin and evil and injustice. But Paul here seems to use the two words here in contrast to each other as if his righteousness is the solution to his wrath. It's because the wrath of God is being revealed that we need a gospel that reveals the righteousness of God. So what Paul is saying here is the wrath of God actually creates the problem to which his righteousness revealed in the gospel is the solution. And the way Paul then lays out his argument uh, in this chapter uh, probably runs counter to the way that we may by default think about God and sin and judgment. And it's certainly counter to the popular notion, the the idea that most people have of what Christians believe about God and sin and judgement. Now part of that's our fault, the church's fault, because of the way we've presented it and often because of the legalistic and judgmental way that we can operate and speak uh, towards non-believers. But it's also because it's just the default way that a human being Uh, wants to think because uh, a wrong way to think about sin and judgement ultimately portrays God as unfair and us as okay. So what is the popular view of sin and judgement? Well, generally it goes something like this. I look at myself and I say I'm morally neutral. If anything... I'm probably 
good. If the scales were to tip, they would generally tip on the good side in my favour. But I do commit sins by breaking God's rules. I make mistakes, uh, but it's because I make mistakes rather than because there's something in me that's not right. As a result, God is cross with me for breaking his rules. And God then threatens to punish me unless I change my behaviour and do good. From so many of my conversations with non-Christian people, that is the perception they have of what we believe as Christians. And as I said, sometimes that's what we can often portray. But that kind of view of sin and judgement comes from an understanding of God as the moral watchdog. He's up there in heaven, he's the divine policeman who's always watching to see who's naughty and who's nice so he can punish or reward. That view uh, gives us reason to say, well what right does God have to punish me so harshly? I've only broken some of the rules and I've certainly not done anything that deserves eternity in hell. See, that's the view that makes God out to be uh, angry and unfair and distant and removed and us to be okay. What's the biblical view that we see here expressed in Romans 1? Well, it's a relational view. My heart is turned against God. There's something wrong with me, with my heart. It no longer sets its affections upon God who created me, uh, but is instead turned away in rebellion. God's wrath, and it's a loving wrath, because he loves us, his wrath is upon me because of my betrayal. I haven't just broken some rules. I've actually betrayed him as a person. I've rejected him as my loving father. And so God lovingly hands me over to the outworking of what's in my heart. It's as if he says, okay, if that's where you want to go with your heart, let's, let's see how you go with that. Let's hand you over to allow you to to experience the full outworking of these things that you've set your heart on instead of me. And we'll see how how that works for you. So my sins, my breaking of the rules, show the state of my heart and my need for mercy. What's God's response to all this? Will he in light of what he has done in Christ, he calls me to repent and to believe so I may receive forgiveness. It's a very relational view of sin and judgement because it's a view that comes out of knowing God as the Father who has created me to be his beloved child. And so all that God does in judgement is the Father at work with the aim of bringing me back into relationship 
with himself. Remember last week we saw God's righteousness is essentially describing that he lives in rightly ordered relationships. That's why the Gospel, being a revelation of his righteousness, is the solution to this revelation of his wrath. His righteousness is his action to bring things and to bring people back into that right relationship with him and with one another and into a a situation where there is no longer any need for wrath. So we we see the goodness of God uh, being expressed uh, in this chapter, even though there's a lot lot there about uh, sin and judgment and wrath. We see God's abundant goodness in his self-revelation in verses 19 to 20. We see that God is a God who is knowable. He's not distant and removed. Um, we, we sang that hymn in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. But that doesn't mean that he's not knowable. We cannot see him with our eyes, but we may know him. He is knowable. And not only that, he is actively making himself known. This knowledge of God doesn't come from us. We can't deduce the existence or the nature of God from our end. He can only be known as he reveals himself. And this, we're told, he has done. At the very least, he's done it through his creation. The creation bears the fingerprints of the creator, just as a painting bears the marks of its painter. You look at a Van Gogh and you say, oh yes, I recognise that's a Van Gogh because it bears the marks of the the man who painted it. In the same way, creation um, is a revelation of who God is. Now this may raise for us the question, well, what about those who have never heard? What Paul is saying here is, God has given enough information to every single person who lives in this creation, enough information to act on. The problem is, no one has acted on it. It's not that God is a bad communicator, it's that we are bad listeners and we refuse to hear. Now we may struggle with this because of the way we think about creation. To say that God is the creator doesn't mean that he just made the world in a mechanical, detached kind of way. It means, if he is the creator, that all of his creatures are dependent and accountable to him. As a creature, I have a responsibility to live out my creatureliness in a right relationship with my creator. That's the way I've been designed and that's what uh, every person knows deep down. They have a, a responsibility to God, their creator. And that's why Paul says, no one has an excuse. No one will be able to stand before God and say, I had no way of knowing that you were real. Or, I had no idea 
that I was responsible to you as my creator. The fact that the whole human race hasn't acted on this self-revelation of God through his creation is an, uh, is an indication that even if they had more information, they wouldn't have acted on that either. Paul says in Acts 17 when he's speaking to pagan Greek philosophers who, judging by their reaction to him as he was preaching in the marketplace, have no idea about the Jewish faith, no idea about the Jewish scriptures, that this is the first time they have heard anything about the true and living God. And here's what he says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God is not hiding from anyone. He is near to every one of us and he gives all that is needed for anyone to reach out and find him. But we don't. Because our problem is a problem of the heart, not of the intellect. We don't just need more information, more proof to convince us. We need a change of heart. More proof won't change a thing in our heart disposition to God. We need God to step in and make that change. So that's where we are as a human race uh, and it's idolatry. And idolatry is essentially a slap in the face of God. It means that human beings, human religions are not seeking God they're actually deliberately running away from him. Again, our thinking is challenged by this. We've been led to think in our pluralistic world that religious expression is a, is a heartfelt, genuine seeking of God and of the truth. This passage tells us it's actually the opposite. Images and idols, which was the the standard expression of religion at the time. It's not an attempt to find or to express God, but it's it's an exchange of his glory for things that are in the creation. Even though God has been exceedingly generous in making himself obvious, humanity has rejected this revelation. The heart of idolatry isn't the physical act of bowing to an image or a statue, but in trying to displace God and ultimately put ourselves in his place. See, human beings are innately religious creatures. We are created for worship. That's why I've got non-religious people there in inverted commas because there really is no such thing as a non-religious person. If we do not worship the true God, we'll find something else or someone else to worship instead. Those in our society today who will uh, describe themselves as having no religion, I think it was 
that 17% of the last census in Australia said no religion. Well, they've just simply rejected the traditional historical expressions of religion and they've replaced it with another more modern form of religion. Money, career, education, well-being, self-actualisation, pleasure or independence, whatever. They're just modern idols that we've put in place of God our creator. So the heart of sin is not I've broken the rules. The heart of sin is idolatry. Having a heart that's turned away from God and set instead on things in creation and ultimately set on ourselves. What's God's response to all this? Well, Paul says, he gave them over. We have been given over to the full-out working of that idolatry that's in our hearts. And Paul stresses here that it is God who actively hands people over. It's the action of God in judgment, in wrath. His wrath is being revealed by him handing us over. And I'll say again, sin is not fundamentally the naughty things we do. It is a rejection of God and his person. It is the sinful outworking of a heart that's already opposed to God and wanting to suppress his truth. R.C. Sproul um, once said, we are not sinners because we sin, rather we sin because we are sinners. We never break the law in a way that's independent of God himself as if God is in one place and he's put his law over here and it's this self-contained thing that's independent of him and we just kind of break the law. When we break the law, it's an expression of rebellion against him personally because it's his law. The law is an expression of his own character. If we steal, we're saying that generosity is wrong by our actions. And so we attack the heart of God as generous. If we commit adultery, we're saying by our actions that faithfulness is wrong. And so we attack God's nature as the faithful God. If we hate, we say by our actions that love of neighbour is wrong. And so we attack the heart of who God is as love and so on. Sin is not breaking the rules, it's slapping God in the face. It's the creature telling the creator that he's a bad creator and doesn't deserve glory or thanks. What is it that we've been given over to? Uh, Three things Paul mentions there. Verse 24, the lust of their hearts. A phrase that doesn't necessarily mean in and of itself sexual lust as some um, modern translations put it. Uh, Verse 26, dishonourable passions, which he then unpacks, and it is uh, that wrong expression of sexuality. And in verse 28, a debased mind. It's as if God is saying to us, okay, well, you do what you want to do. And we hear that, and we think it sounds like freedom. Sure, doing whatever I want. That's freedom, isn't it? That's an expression of free will. 
In reality, if I only ever do what I want, then I'm a captive to my own desires and my own wants. I hear what my body or my passions tell me what to do and I simply obey and do what they tell me because of the promise of pleasure or of gain to myself. Now that's not freedom, is it? If you listen and you do whatever someone says to you and you obey them without question, it's not freedom, that's slavery. Jesus himself said, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sinful action, the breaking of the rules, is evidence of a bondage of a slavery to sin that's there in our hearts. And that means that the solution to slavery, to sin, is not a change in behaviour, but a change in ownership. If we are a slave to someone, the only way we'll be free is if someone buys us out of slavery and we belong to them. And more than that, to be brought out of slavery into a family. So Jesus goes on, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God's solution to our heart that's turned against him is to hand us over to the outworking of that. But the goal ultimately is not a a legal solution, it is a relational solution. He deals with our sin and brings us into relationship through the Son. Now, we can't ignore the references here to homosexuality. Uh, They're very clear and um, we might ask, well, why is it that Paul seems to be making so much of homosexuality? He mentions a great list of various sins at the end of our passage, but he seems to go into much more detail here in terms of sexuality. Why? Why is this the case? Some have said, well, it's just a cultural reference to the abusive and dominating uh, relationships that were taking place in Greek culture and also with the temple prostitution that was there in Rome. But it's, it's much more than that. Our sexuality being created male and female and the union of a man and woman in marriage is an image of the relationship of God with his people. True marriage is to Christ. It's between Christ and his bride, the church. And human marriage is supposed to reflect that. So if a human being wants to pervert the truth of God, to suppress the truth and distort the image that is supposed to point so wonderfully towards Christ and his church, often the first thing they will turn to is a false or perverted sexuality since it strikes right at the heart of God's purpose for humanity. And it's no coincidence that as our society loses its uh, Christian influence and heritage, our sexual morals are also declining. Some people think that Christians have a bit of a hang-up over this whole issue of sexuality and sexual, uh, sexual immorality. It's only because we live in a sex-mad society. 
Look around you. Society is always talking about sex and distortions and perversions of God's design for our sexuality. While sexual sin isn't technically worse than other sins, it's it's an indication of a humanity that is working hard to suppress the truth of God and especially the truth of God who restores people to intimate relationships. So, I won't go any more into that but uh, last year um, the elders here at Bethel we issued a pastoral letter regarding the whole same-sex marriage issue and how we as a church and as Christians should be responding to those who are uh, involved in that lifestyle and uh, I've printed some extra copies if you didn't get one uh, back then last year in September uh, there's some copies out there for you to, to take and read. Well this has likely been a hard and heavy journey uh, for us and for some of you this morning and there's more to come. It's not until uh, we get to chapter 3 that we hear the good news of the gospel break through on all of this. We've heard things said about humanity, about our humanity that we don't like to hear. It may even have made you feel angry. But we need to keep before ourselves the vision that we've seen from the first half of this chapter, the, the vision of what God's goal is for us all. God's vision is that we may be people who love and are loved by God, who are loving and being loved by one another and who are part of God's great plan to redeem and reconcile all things. This is what his plan is for us, what his goal is for us, but he must start firstly by telling us how and why we are not that. Only then will we see the depth and the breadth and the height of his mercy in what he has done by sending his son to set us free. The cross will be meaningless to us if we don't face up to what we are in our idolatry. However, if we face up to the full horror of sin, then seeing Jesus on the cross bearing all of our sin in all of, our, all of its horror will be the best news ever. I remember as a young man being faced with the full weight of my sin. It was actually as uh, I was attending some Bible studies and someone was working through Geoffrey Bigham's little book called The Wrath of His Love. I was hit with the, the, the full horror and weight of my sin and also with the full weight of God's wrath that was upon me because of my sin. And it was, amazingly, it was an experience of great relief. I realised God loves me so much that he's willing to tell me the truth about myself so that I will have no option but to flee to Jesus, to the foot of the cross, to receive the mercy and the grace that he offers 
So this morning you've been confronted with the, the things that Roman has said about uh, us as humanity and about you as a person. Uh, know that, that, that the whole purpose of this is not that you may uh, wallow in your grief and wallow in your shame and your guilt. It's so that you may see the truth about yourself and you may see the truth about God's love for you in sending his son uh, to bring you to himself. And I encourage you all to receive that love and that grace this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love in that you have revealed the truth of your wrath that is upon the human race. You could have hidden it. You could have just wiped us out without saying anything, without doing anything. But instead, in love and in grace and in incredible patience and mercy, you have persevered with us, a sinful humanity. Not only have you persevered, but you have acted in such strong and powerful, uh, incomparably great uh, love in sending your Son to bear all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our ignorance and our suppressing of the truth, all of our idolatry, all of our hard-heartedness was all borne by him at that cross. So now we may be free and know your love and know that you are our Father who's created us to be your children. We pray that we might know that truth uh, deep down in our hearts. And as we, uh, Father, work through these coming passages in the coming weeks, that we will always uh, know that you tell us these things because of that love you have for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we...